you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 15 through 20 this morning. So we had, we'd started off in Ezra 8 a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and we, we, we took a break last week as we, we took of the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper together and focused all of our time and attention uh, on that. And so now we turn once again to a second round of exiles preparing to leave Persia to make their way back to Jerusalem under the leadership of a priest and a scribe, scribe named Ezra. So chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders also for Jorib and Elnathan, men of understanding. I, I guess you can tell the popular baby names uh, in Persia. All right. Verse 17. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place, Casiphia. And I told them what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim at the place, Casiphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. Of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were designated by name. There is no shortage of talk and opinion when it comes to what makes for a great society. And, and of course, to, to the folks in this room, I'm sure we are all too aware that often the various visions for what makes a great people, a, a great community, or a great society, these are often in competition with one another. In fact, many of these visions for what makes a great society aren't just in competition, they are mutually exclusive. In some cases, you pursue the vision of one group, and it will exalt, elevate, put into practice principles, ideas, and values that directly contradict those of another side. We're aware that progressive elites in our country have been working steadily, and really it's not just ours, I would say the Western world in particular, have been working steadily for close to a century now 
This hasn't happened in the last couple of years. It hasn't happened in the last 10 years. It hasn't happened in the last 50 years. In fact, for most of this, it started before anybody in this room was even alive. Principles and values were pursued. Commitments were made early on that even if they would die before they saw the fruition of their vision, they were going to make an effort to radically transform our society into something much different than what we would hope for or that even what our founding fathers envisioned. Though there are a lot of ways we could identify this particular vision of society, I think in simplest forms, it can be identified as, as kind of two parts. On the one hand, a pursuit of what I would call hyper-individualism, meaning that the only thing that matters is the person himself or herself or however they want to identify, right? Hyper-individualism, it's all about me, individual, and at the same time, a hyper-control from government on the other hand. I think this is just kind of the nature of a particular view being pursued. Now, I, I know what you may be thinking, at least some of you, if, if you're listening yet, all right, so, I don't, some of you may be thinking about lunch, but some of you in hearing that may be thinking, all right, where is he going with this? Is this, is, is this some kind of political thing he's going to be talking about? Well, no, not really, though that may come into play. What I find interesting about that as an example, just what I just led off with, is that we recognize, though, there are fundamental features, historically speaking, largely grounded in a Judeo-Christian worldview that, has, that, that have been in place wherever there have been great societies in the Western world in particular, where there have been great societies, there had been fundamental principles, really, that, that, that do have uh, their, their birth and their, their, their origin in what we would call basic Judeo-Christian ideals. Things that historians would even recognize, here's really what you need. If you want to make a society great, here's really what you need. You're, you're, you're going to need to have a strong sense of the importance of family. You're going to need to have respectable, trustworthy leadership. You're going to need to invest in the education of not only those in positions of, uh, of already engaging in work and whatnot, but even in subsequent generations. You need to have a view of government that recognizes its design to promote peace and freedom while at the same time punish evildoers. And you need to have a particular economic system that allows for the freedom of people to act responsibly, ethically, yet under their own conscience. Now, so, so these, these, are, these are readily recognized. Your pastor's not making something up. He's not going into a different field of study. All right, these are things, if you were to study this, read about this, these are going to be standard. Now, again, I, I, maybe if I, if I haven't lost you yet, you may be wondering, all right, pastor, I got it. Where is all this going? Are you running in 2022? Is this what you're going to do? No, all right. Not even sure all of you would vote for me. All right, so no, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm doing. 
Instead, what we find when we turn to God's Word is that these things, and this is just as an illustration, these things which make for the flourishing of a community or a society are not new. That, in fact, we can go way, way back. In fact, we can go back to the Word of God itself, that the Bible not only outrightly and explicitly declares those values and principles which are the best under which God's creation should live, but even implicitly through story after story and example after example, we have of how God works among His people to ensure that they, they have the, the best that they possibly could have. In other words, a book like Ezra, I think, is a great example of this. A great example of how we have these values and principles that we just intuitively recognize make a great society and people, and therefore, therefore make a great people of God, and therefore would make a great church. These, these have existed for a long time. Ezra illustrates what this looks like. What is God's design? What does it take then to be a place that, that best cooperates with the way God has ordered His world to work, and how, how can we cooperate with that so that we enjoy the, the best of living in light of God's principles? I mean, really, Ezra demonstrates something we noted two weeks ago. It's the title of this sermon, the sermons through this portion of Ezra. Times may have changed, but God has not. I know it's stunning to a lot of people out there in the world today, but the fact is, if we want to see benefit and blessing, we, we don't need to do something new and innovative. How about principles that are about 2,500 years old? How about that? Could it be that God in His sovereignty and wisdom is able to create a system that works regardless of time, regardless of place, regardless of culture? That's what we have in the book of Ezra. And so two weeks ago, we jumped into Ezra chapter 8, looking at this part of the story. And, and what, what we find, we find Ezra the scribe, priest, organizing this second group of exiles who are going to be going back to Jerusalem. And chapter 8 gives us insight into the preparations that go into it. But beyond that, more than just kind of giving us insight into how Ezra leads the people and, and ensures they have, you know, a plan in place and they're making the, the appropriate preparations, what Ezra chapter 8 does for us is I, I, think it, I think it illustrates key values, principles, ideals, the word that we're using are expectations that need to be in place among God's people in, in order to live faithfully as God's people. Specifically, chapter, five, chapter 8 gives us five of these expectations. Now, before we jump back into this, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of tease for what the rest of the book is going to offer to us. I would contend that this fundamental feature, times may have changed, but God has not. There are certain values and principles that need to be in place among any given group of people, but in particular among God's people, in order to, en to enjoy then the blessings of, of God. 
I would contend it's the rest of the book. This is the theme of the rest of the book of Ezra, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And we're going to end up hitting on a lot of the themes that I referenced even in the introduction just a few minutes ago. We're going to find Ezra ends up illustrating for us why it is so critical that if we're going to organize effectively as God's people, that that we do need to make sure we've got the right conception of family. Ezra's going to be concerned with this. We're going to find out that the folks in Jerusalem have blown it here. They're, They're messing up big time when it comes to how they're conceiving of family. We're also going to find Ezra's going to be very concerned with properly educating the people. In fact, he's going to use a method that when we get to it, you will be thankful that your pastor only goes long for about 15 minutes-ish. All right? Okay? Just hold on to it. And that's going to forever then be my example. Well, it could be like in the days of Ezra. All right, so you just hold on to that, but they're going to take it so seriously, they're going to engage in a radical means of education, discipleship, and communication. All right? We're going to see that God very much expects His people to take personal responsibility for themselves, for their own obedience, for their own faithfulness. And in fact, this may not be going on in Jerusalem also. So all of these are going to come into play. But as we look at chapter 8, we're we're identifying specifically five features that God expects for His people to have in place, five features that I think Ezra is leading the people then to to form and to, to, to be the foundation from which they spring into this new journey, this new uh, place in life as they make their way then back to the promised land. So five expectations that help us live as the people of God, enjoying the blessing of God, and I would contend being most effective in the community in which we live. Because again, before we get to one more, before we get, get to some points and blanks to fill in, almost two years ago, we, along with everybody else, shut down and we went to online services for about 10 weeks or so. In the midst of that, I preached a series of messages and indicated among a number of things that I, I would contend the single greatest earthly need is a healthy church. City of New Bern may not know this, in large part, many do, the greatest single earthly need for this city is a healthy church. So this is imperative that we get this right. This is, this is our function, then God, God has placed us here for this purpose. So what, what does that look like? All right, well, number one, this is what we looked at two weeks ago. We looked at the issue of leadership. We won't re-preach this. You can go back and read it again. You can go back and listen from two weeks ago if you were not with us. And, and I, just, I just made much of this one principle. Not only do we need to be well-led, we need right leadership, we need godly leadership, we need qualified leadership, but I contended I went one step further. And if you, you were here two weeks ago, so you've showed up again, all right? So you know what I said, I think. I think specifically, God's people need God-qualified men to lead. And I don't apologize for saying that. In a culture that would encourage me to retract those words, right? If I had any social media, they perhaps would ban me from it for saying such. 
Now, this is not to deny the important leadership roles women can fulfill, especially in in many informal ways, but I would contend for my position, the position of pastors, the, the position that I fulfill, and John and Aaron, that these positions are reserved for men. No, the, what we need are godly, qualified men to lead, to be examples, to function as God intended for His people to function. So we noted this, how, how Ezra at the end of chapter 7 gathered for himself leading men of Israel. Then we noted verses 1 through 14. If you look at that next genealogy they give, they talk about the heads of the fathers. Uh, houses, and then they talk about the sons. It's a unique genealogy. The first one in chapter 2 didn't address it this way. So a, a major effort is being given here to make sure there are godly, qualified men providing leadership, engaged in the work. Now, ju- just, just as a one further elaboration on this, the reason why I think sometimes this needs to be emphasized so much and why we don't have to emphasize it to women is because women very often regularly and gladly will serve God and His people, and often I find myself having to be really preachy and pulpit-poundy to get men to serve. I know that lays heavy, but again, I'm not going to apologize for it. God's people are most blessed when we follow God's prescribed ordering of things. It's true in your home. It's true in a church. And so this is, this is what we need in order to be faithful and healthy. All right, number two. The second expectation we have of God's, that God would have of His people, and that would be service. Service. So God, God needs God-qualified leaders. But to take, take that then even further, God's people also need committed, gifted, and skilled servants functioning among His people in light of their gifts and skills. God has always built His people using faithful servants. Now, I know that's it's not brilliant, right? I mean, nothing about that you hear and think, oh, that's you should submit that to Harvard Business Review. All right, that is brilliant. You know, we've never heard that before. So, so that, that's why we see, we really, that's kind of part of the point. That in fact, these have always been principles. We just need to enact them. And what we need among God's people are people who faithfully serve. Now, before we kind of break that out a little bit more for the next few minutes, don't misunderstand this distinction. I'm not suggesting that you have two different classes, that you have leaders, meaning you have those like pastors or elders who, who are leading and that the rest of the rabble has to just do whatever we say, all right? So don't leave here thinking, well, that's exactly what the pastor said. So that's not. The best leaders are servant leaders. I wish I were even much better at it, quite frankly. The best leaders are servant leaders. So this is not a distinction I'm making between two groups, but at the same time, the Bible does very much encourage God's people to view their relationship with Him and His church and the community in which they live through the lens of service. We need those who are humble, committed, gifted, in whatever way God has gifted them, to, to serve. And, and, I, and I mean that in the broadest and even simplest of ways, to, to just do what needs to be done. 
which is a myriad of things. So notice how this shows up in this story. All right, verse 15 gives us a bit of geography here. Ezra says, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. The only thing you need to know about that geographical reference, they're still, they're still in Persia. They're still in Babylon. So they've gathered at the river, and they're camping for three days. Again, they're about to go 1,000 miles. They're about to go 1,000 miles, not with, you know, seasoned, trained military men. This is everybody. That's a hard journey. You don't take that journey on lightly. Okay, so they've gathered to prepare. Ezra the scribe, the priest, taking his job seriously. He's been given the green light by King Artaxerxes. All right, so it's time to move. So, all right, let's gather together. Let's see. And so we, the text doesn't tell us how they got the word out, but the word has gone out that a new group of Jews are going to be given freedom to go back to Jerusalem. They're going to be given all the resources they need to get this job done. Who wants to go? Well, we noted two weeks ago, the first group of exiles, some 80 years before this period of time, about 50,000 returned. This time, about 5,000. So right off the bat, those who have gathered there, I don't know if this was discouraging to Ezra, so I'm not going to read into that, but my guess is it would have been. We have every evidence to believe that, uh, that Daniel was less than thrilled with the number of exiles that returned to Jerusalem. That's a diff- different book, but in, in Daniel's prophecy... He seems to express dismay at so many who seem to love Babylon more than the promised land. And that may be just something good for somebody here. That's what you need to think about for the rest of the time that we're here. As God's people, we need to be careful. The siren song of Babylon can be strong. The, the world can sing a sweet lullaby to us that makes us think, yeah, let's just hang out right here. It can be easy to do. We need to be cautious of the ways in which we allow our love for the world to lessen our service to God and His people. And this is exactly what's happening. Because notice that next phrase of verse 15. And I looked among the people and the priest and found none of the sons of Levi there. All right. So what? Why do they need sons of Levi? The tribe of Levi, so that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites had a very specific job description. In fact, in the original going into the land of Canaan, taking it over and getting allotments of land, the Levites are the only ones who do not have an allotment because God set aside the Levites in service to Him and the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Their allotment was God Himself. And so through their service to the tabernacle, they were provided for in whatever ways they needed to. But the Levites had one singular task— They were entrusted with the care and running of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Now, one particular branch of the Levite tree was Aaron and his lineage. They were to serve as priests. They were the ones engaged in sacrifice, 
uh, making sure all the ritual elements of the law were in place. But, but then, then there was this host of Levites over time, this host of Levites who then became servants of the temple. In other words, their, their job then was to see to the, the running of all of those organizational administrative elements related to temple life. The work of the temple could not be accomplished without them. The Levites were essential. Now, we don't know what's going on in Jerusalem. You know, if, if you've never read the story before, you'd at least get some idea. There's at least a concern. There's a concern about what's going on in Jerusalem. And Ezra seems to be specifically concerned, especially with those who've gathered at the river, that they need more Levites. Again, this is how God had established it. God expected the Levites to serve the temple. And if they were insufficient, then that meant work was not going to get done. This, by the way, is another important principle. We always follow God's principles, and we don't ever compromise on them. Because somebody may come along and say, well, what about somebody from another tribe? (laughs) They love the Lord. Why can't they just get in there and do it? Because that's not what God said. And guess what you don't get to determine? You don't get to determine what level of obedience God says is appropriate. You don't get to dictate to God the terms by which you serve Him. Do you know that? You don't get to dictate that. I mean, we do, but that, that's not, a, it's not our right. No, God said the Levites are to do this. And so they need to gather up Levites. So this is what, this is what Ezra does. Ezra then enacts this plan. He gathers a group of men, all right? Not trying to beat that thing to death, but that's what he does. And notice how it describes them at the end of verse 16, men of understanding. And he tells them, I want you to go to Edo, and, and, and I, I want you to tell them exactly what I'm about to tell you. And so we, we know that the basic instruction at the end of verse 17, that they need to bring us servants for the house of God. So again, they're camped there for three days and one of them doing a head count of all of the men. So going through all that lineage in verses 1 through 14, Ezra comes across this problem. And so he, he enacts a plan, we need more servants. And so the call goes out. I would love to know what this looked like, what exactly they did uh, to, to get some of these Levites energized and engaged, but it does happen. And in fact, Ezra then ascribes this once again to God's good hand. Notice verse 18. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. That word, by the way, understanding, that really speaks in a very general sense. This is a man of wisdom. This is a man of knowledge. It, it meant this is a man who sees the world as he should. An appropriate, proper understanding of how things should work. God God gave them a man of understanding of the tribe of Levi. And it goes on to describe how how then he's got, we we have sons there, 18 men in all. And it talks about um, then, then sons of sons. It talks about brothers. It tells us all of these men that, that then were able to be uh, recruited for this service. Verse 20 then identifies for us this group called the Nethanim. These are descendants, descendants of the Gibeonites. 
And I won't go into the details of their story other than that they were able to effectively negotiate with Israel so that they didn't all die. And in doing so, became forever servants of the Levites in their service to the temple. All right? And so the Nethanim are also just a part of this work. They've already come up in the book of Ezra. So this, this, is, this is what they are, this is what they need in order to effectively engage in the work God has for them. When they get to Jerusalem, they need God honoring leaders and they need humble, qualified, skilled, gifted, willing servants. So God, again, orchestrates events to ensure that they have sufficient resources to get this done. And it tells us at the very end, 220 Nethanim. Then we have the, the 18 men and the 20 men before that. Again, telling us all of them were designated by name. In other words, he's saying, I've got a spreadsheet. All right, I've got a list of all those um, who are going to be serving in this way. And all this story, I think, illustrates is just this, that, that for God's work to be accomplished, He does it through His servants, through the people of God serving Him faithfully, serving in whatever capacity they've been called to serve. Now, we're looking at a specific group of people, the Levites, and a very specific kind of calling. But I think in a principled sense, in a larger sense, this absolutely illustrates what needs to happen among us. That as God's people, we need to understand our view of ourselves and our function in this world is to be viewed through the lens of servants of the Most High God. We're His servants doing His bidding following His will, obedient to His expectations for us. God has called us all to be servants. By the way, I do want to point out here something I think that is important and helpful about this passage. You know, he says that the good hand of our God was upon us. But you know what I love about Ezra? Ezra is not a passive and this shows up in evangelicalism today, this passive, just let go and let God kind of approach to obedience. Now, on the one hand, I understand kind of what that means, but on the other hand, it's kind of a, uh, an excuse to just be lazy. In other words, here's what Ezra could have done, all right? Ezra could have just hung out by the river, all right? Get us some fishing poles, let's do a fire, maybe some s'mores. They probably wouldn't have done hot dogs, but that, you know, let's just hang out here for the next three days. We're camping, I mean, this is great. We, yeah, we need Levites, but God, and maybe you'd even say God, you know, like God, right? Maybe you'd say it with a sense of piousness. God will provide. And so let's just see if we can catch us another one, all right? In other words, he could have just remained passive, but that's not how this thing works. Ezra understood that obedience involves cooperating with the sovereign work of God. Ezra had no doubt this was God's sovereign work. The good hand of God was upon us. Yet what was he willing to do to engage in the work? God has not called us to this kind of weird, passive, pious obedience. I'm just going to sit back and just wait. It's active. It's engaged. God accomplishes His work in the world through work, working alongside of and cooperation with His servants. It's just how He's done things. Why did it this way? I don't know. It's how He decided to. So this is how we should be operating faithfully engaged in the work to which God has called us. 
So again, this, this emphasizes kind of this basic idea. If we're going to be faithful to the Lord, if we're going to be effective as his people, then we need to be effective servants. We, we need to be serving in the way that God has equipped and, and in a way that we can do that so honors the Lord. Now, here's how I want to conclude this. I just want to take a few minutes and kind of give you some, some categories. This is not in your notes. Categories to help you understand what I would argue are the three main areas of life in which you should serve the Lord, all right? Three main areas of life, and it's going to be up on a slide. It's just not in your notes. It's going to be behind me, all right? The three main areas where you should understand your service to the Lord. One, we serve God's purposes in our families, and I know most people are hearing this and you're thinking, oh, well, he's a pastor, he's preaching in a church, and so he must, he must expect us to give all of our service to the church. No, that's going to come. But I don't expect you to give all of it. God expects you to be a servant in your home, serving your families, serving your families in your God-assigned roles. And this is, by the way, is where it's got to begin. It's got to begin with faithful families. It's got to begin with, with dads serving, serving as, as those who love, love their wives as Christ loved the church, those who are willing to be leaders in the home, those who are then engaged in ensuring the proper rearing and discipleship of children. We, we need wives and moms who also are serving as Christ would have them to serve, this, this loving kind of Submission. I know, it's another word, all right, but I said it, I don't apologize for it, it's in the Bible. All right, to, to, to the role God has assigned to the husband, yet at the same time recognizing husband and wife, serving one another, loving one another in Christ's likeness, and then serving the children entrusted to them. Even beyond that, recognizing family extends beyond just that nuclear understanding, the ways in which we are responsible for the families in which God has placed us. Let us see ourselves serving them faithfully. We also serve God's purposes in the church. And by that, I don't mean God's, I don't mean serving in regard to some institutional position. I mean serving the people of God according to the way you've been gifted. And you have been gifted. God has equipped you, gifted you to serve. Now, let me add something here. I would encourage you to resist the notion that is bandied about these days, that we should only be doing the things that we are most passionate about and love the most. Okay, yeah, that would be great. And I wish I could eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream every day and not gain weight. Yes. Listen to me, church. Not everything God calls you to do will be something you are absolutely passionate about. I'm not saying he won't call you to do things you're passionate about. Sure he will. But there, there are hard things to everything we do. What God needs is humble servants. If somebody sits back and says, well, I've got to tell you, Pastor, that's just really not my thing. You know, helping with kids just really isn't my thing. Uh, sharing the gospel just really isn't my thing. Uh, being involved in this, this group or this, this committee or being involved in this Sunday school class, nope, not my thing. Well, you need to change your definition of thing, all right? Because all that should be. I mean, it's not all... It's not all something maybe we'd necessarily love the most. We sit back and we're, we're waiting for these things that we are most passionate about. What gets us really fired up and energized and charged? Yes, if you find that, yes, that's great. But there are times in which God calls us to serve 
just because it's the right thing to do. We need to serve one another in the church. We also need to serve God's purposes in the world. Do not assume that your service to the Lord happens either in your home or in the church. And so I just want to encourage you with a broader sense of what it means to serve the Lord. Wherever God has placed you, serve faithfully. Again, wherever you may be in life, from those who are who are working, whatever field you may be working in, uh, to, to those who are to our young people in, in school in whatever form they may be in, to, to those who are retired, and then whatever that looks like. Understand, you can serve God's greater purposes in the world. And I would contend here, church, we need to be much better at thinking about this kind of thing, and we need to understand this as being of primary concern in what the ch- church should be doing in educating and discipling, especially the next generation. See, one of the things that gets me, you're going to have to hold on for a few minutes, all right? This is going to take a minute. All right, so one of the things that gets me here, and I've said this before, I, I very often hear people say, I don't know how somebody can bring children into this world, how somebody can raise kids in this world, saying where things are going. Number one, if you think that, do not tell a young couple that, all right? I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Do not tell them not to have kids because what's going to change things around us for generations to come? We need children, we need young people, and we need those children not to come to church because they like to play fun games, not to come to church because it's something that's exciting and and crazy and wild, not to meet some kind of personal need. We need to do this because we desperately need to build in to the lives of our children and our teenagers what it means to love Christ, to know his word, to have a solid biblical worldview, to know how to defend that worldview so that we can send them out into the world to be teachers, to be in medicine, to be in law, to be in politics, to be in business, to run their own homes in such a way that Christ is glorified, God is honored, the word is made central. Stop bemoaning moaning the circumstances of the day and recognize that the way God can work and move in a people is when people get serious about making disciples in Christ. So this is what we're going to do. Yes, it's hard. I know you realize it's hard. I know you think it's harder than it's ever been. I get it. But if God in his sovereignty is giving us children forbid that we would deny that responsibility. This world needs the church because this world needs godly people and the next generation needs godly men and women loving Christ and knowing his word and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So church, can we do that? Can we be that kind of people? We've got to serve these purposes. We've got to serve in this way, serving our family, serving our church, serving in the greater responsibility in the world so that we can see the glory of God manifest. Now, I don't say all this to say, all all this, if we do all of this, then we can make God turn the country around. That's That's not the purpose of all of this. But I am suggesting that sitting back and simply saying how bad everything is is not gonna make it better. We know that. We know how bad it is. So let's do something different. You're gonna be hearing more about this, by the way. This is not just going to be a one-time rant, all right? This is going to be a rant over and over, all right? In fact, you might hear it from a couple other recognizable faces over the months to come. So this is not, this is not a lone rant on my part, all right, where pastors just got uh, hot and hungry. Okay, this is not it. This, 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 this is something that's going to be essential to the way we view how we're going to be doing church, meaning how we're going to be God's people according to God's word 
in, in the months to come. You're going to be hearing more about how, how we can better cooperate with God's design so that we are investing our time and resources in the best possible ways. Ministering to, to, to men and, and women to help them be better disciplers, in particular in the home and ways in which we can come alongside them, the family, to ensure that what happens here is, is, is only strengthening and reaffirming what's being done. So this is, this is where we hope to go in the years to come. Recognizing that my desire is not simply to produce the next generation of church members. I want to, I want to be able to leave this life thinking we've done something that will create change that will happen even after we die. Are we committed to that long-term kind of vision? Are we committed now to saying we'll do things now to ensure, because that's what the progressives have done. That's what they've done for a century. We're not that good at doing this, but we should be that we'll invest in a generation and the next and the next and the next thinking, it may be possible I'll die before I see the full fruition of this. And can we commit ourselves to it, hoping, trusting then to God and His greater purposes? What it looks like to be a faithful community, serving Him. We need godly leadership. We need humble servants. Of course, we recognize all of this is possible. Our ability to serve Him first comes because He served us, right? I mean, we recognize all this is grounded in the gospel itself. This is not something where we're, we're efforting our way to it. This, this can happen because of God's good grace already given to us in Christ Jesus. Our ability to serve one another and this church is because God and His grace in Christ has already served us by sending His one and only Son to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. And that when, you, when we confess our faith in Christ, that we are sinners unable to save ourselves, and that God, by His grace, can save us in Christ, when we confess that, that we can be made right with Him and transformed into the people God would have us to be. So I would implore anybody here who does not know Christ, that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about that, I'll be down front. I'd love an opportunity to share with you more about what it means to believe the gospel. To those who would say, yes, I've done that to God's people are you living a life then in submission to God and His Word, being servants as God has designed you? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we will continue to sing about the, this good and glorious gospel of our God. Father God, we do thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your call on our lives, that it is a call on all of our lives to serve You. What a privilege it is to be able to serve You and Your greater purposes. And so, God, we pray that You would continue by Your Spirit to bring Your Word to bear in our lives, that we would be obedient to it, and that we might be useful tools in Your hands to accomplish Your purposes here and even for generations to come, so that You are glorified now by Your people and that we can rest assured that the people to come as well. So again, Father, we trust our lives to you, asking you work as you see fit and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.